0: In this episode of Vanishing Gradients, I'm speaking with Sarah Cadenzaro. Sarah is a general partner at Amplify Partners, where she invests in the tools and the types of tools that we both wish we had earlier in our careers. Tools that enable data scientists and machine learners to collect store, manage, analyze, and model data more effectively. As you'll discover, Sarah identifies as a scientist first and an investor second, and believes that her mission is to enable companies to become data-driven and to generate ROI through machine and statistical learning. In her words, she's still that cuckoo kid who's ranting and raving about how data and AI will shift every tide. In this conversation, we talk about what scientific inquiry actually is and the elements of play and seriousness it necessarily involves and how it can be used to generate business value. We talk about Sarah's unorthodox path from a data scientist working in defense to her time at Palantir and how that led her to build out a data team and data function for a venture capital firm and then to becoming a VC herself in the data tooling space. We then really dive in to the data science and machine learning tooling space to figure out why it's so fragmented. We look to the data analytics stack and software engineering communities to find historical tethers and analogies that may be useful. We discuss the moving parts that led to the establishment of a standard, a system of record and clearly defined roles in analytics and what we can learn from that for machine learning. We also dive into the development of tools, workflows and division of labor as partial exercises in pattern recognition and how this can be at odds generally with the variance we see in the machine learning landscape. Two takeaways are that we need best practices and we need more standardization. Probably should have given a spoiler alert before that. We also discussed that with all our focus on conversations about tools, what conversations were actually missing. And Sarah was adamant that we need to be focusing on questions, not solutions, and even questioning what ML is useful for and what it isn't, diving into a bunch of thoughtful and nuanced examples. I'm also grateful that Sarah let me take her down a slightly dangerous and self-critical path where we riffed on both our roles in potentially contributing to the tragedy of the commons we're all experiencing in the data tooling landscape. Me working in tool building, developer relations, and occasionally in marketing, and Sarah herself in venture capital. This is just a subset of what we discussed, so I hope you enjoy all of it. I'm your host, Hugo Bowne-Anderson, and welcome to Vanishing Gradients. Hey there, Sarah, and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: I am very excited to have you here. And I think you're aware of this, but you are the first investor I've had on the podcast so far.
1: I sometimes forget that I'm an investor, but... Go on. Thank you for the reminder.
0: (laughs) We always need to remind each other of the boxes that we put each other in, I think. But on your website, for example, it says you're first and foremost a data scientist and always think of yourself secondarily as an investor. So that's one of the reasons I really want to... You get in the weeds with a lot of the tools and a lot of the open source tools as well and the community. And in fact, I remember before the first time we spoke, someone said to me, do you know Sarah Cadenzaro?" And I said, well, I know of her and we've interacted on Twitter. I don't think we've ever spoken. And they said... Oh, that's weird because she's spoken with everyone in the space right and so i think a worldview and a breadth of knowledge which i'd like to explore here but before we get to that as i said to you before i think of this podcast as some form of i'm very far from a sociologist but i think i want to explore people and their interests and kind of develop different worldviews of the space with respect to different types of people in the space and so i'd really like to go on a journey with you and i told you i wanted to talk about how you got into the data world but i even want to go Further back, I was looking at your website earlier today and I want to read something you wrote to you. So forgive my accent. I'm not going to try to sound like you, but you wrote When I was growing up, my favorite pastime was playing with liquid nitrogen. My father, who's a molecular biologist, would bring me to his lab where I'd dunk flowers, Pepsi cans, and other objects in the liquid nitrogen tank. Experimentation and analysis became delightful games that engaged my natural inquisitiveness. So this is so beautiful for me because I think in these conversations we forget about elements of play and curiosity and fun and dancing with ideas and riffing and jazz and all of these different elements of what it means to do science. So I'd like to hear how your career kind of took off, but starting with the young girl, Sarah, dunking stuff in liquid nitrogen tanks.
1: Well, apropos of nothing, my father is Australian too. So hearing that red in an Australian accent actually, you know, really brought back those waves of nostalgia.
0: Amazing.
1: Yeah. So my father is a molecular biologist. My mother is a psychiatrist that also did a lot of clinical research. And so... Science was just always part of my upbringing, whether it was kind of scientific inquiry and constantly like asking questions about why things work the way that they do, running these mini experiments to better understand why things work the way they do, or creating buildings out of marshmallows so that we could better understand how the architecture and structure would impact the stability. I think my parents just always encouraged that sort of inquisitiveness and experimentation as play. They they encouraged my brother and I to always ask why and seek to answer those questions in a more rigorous way. I think I may have mentioned in my bio too that one of the things that led me into the defense and intelligence sector was living in New York during 9-11 and kind of the profound impact that that had. I still remember today, like watching those videos on TV, watching the planes hit the towers, realizing that this was an intentional terrorist act, being horrified by it, but also just stuck in the why, like stuck in the like, why would anybody commit such a horrific act of violence? And I think most people who witnessed that act, again, it profoundly affected them but didn't necessarily feel like they had to go and answer that question. But for me, I ended up spending the first four years of my career really kind of going deep on this question of like, why do people commit uh, horrific acts of violence? Why do terrorists commit atrocities why do individuals join terrorist insurgencies and so on and so forth so maybe it's never stopped being you know that like two-year-old four-year-old that will just keep asking why until like you lose breath <laughs>
0: <laughs> or can absolutely the 50 whys of a child is phenomenal yeah i suppose there's some form of inflection point though there where in your story it goes from play and fun to something deeply serious and you do discuss that on your website and the fact that a lot of your family also lived in new york and or manhattan at the time so i'm actually very interested in working in intelligence and in particular quantitative analysis at that point in time which i think probably was pretty ahead of the curve including your time at palantir right like the types of techniques and stuff you did there was pretty foreshadowed a lot of techniques that are applied elsewhere today and perhaps even aren't yet
1: right yeah absolutely so it's funny because i remember while i was still at the center for advanced defense studies a friend tried to like recruit me into a consulting firm with which he worked and i had a couple of interviews where i was trying to kind of convince the the interviewee that like ai would change the world that that ai would certainly change consulting and that so many of the businesses and organizations with whom they worked would end up like integrating automation and ai into their practice and they thought i was crazy they're like oh that's cute there's this like 22 year old who thinks that like computers are going to change everything I like to reflect back on that and realize that you know, I, was, I was kind of right, that th- there was something to my like craziness of believing that computational methods, that machine learning, that automation would have a profound impact on how we work, how people behave, how companies achieve their objectives. But yeah, I mean, at the time, there wasn't kind of as much Momentum really behind like machine learning and AI and other computational approaches to either studying social phenomena like terrorism or achieving, you know, business objectives like revenue goals. I think, though, just relating this back to what we were discussing before, like I've always been so profoundly interested in understanding how things work. And I really saw computational methods as a way to like more objectively answer those questions of why. Certainly not the only approach, but I think one of the things that I really appreciate about working in these kind of computational social scientific settings was that like our work could be informed by psychology and economics and we're really trying to embrace a more multidisciplinary method But we did see what I guess we now call data science as being kind of a really important tool to help understand why things happen, not just to predict what will happen.
0: I like that. My inner physicist, which is retired, of course, now, wants to say science can't, isn't very good at answering why questions. It's good at answering how questions. And I think in the world of physics, that's right. But maybe in the world of, Studying, well, sociology and why people do things. Maybe this type, thinking about causal inference there can help us answer a why questions, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I think sometimes too, like the act of science or the insights gleaned through science help us as people answer why questions. So it's not that like data science gives you the answer to that why question, but in studying something quantitatively, the process, I think, helps you you know, generate insights into why something might be happening or look at a problem in a unique way that a couple steps later helps you uncover the answer to the why.
0: That makes sense. I want to push back slightly on the idea that computational methods are more objective. I think we've seen that any aspect of the data generating process from collection through to cleaning can introduce all types of biases in. I'd reframe it slightly as you get systematic biases, right, as opposed to subjective biases. But I do think the types of, as we've seen at scale, the types of biases you can get don't necessarily make it objective. Is that a pushback you'd dance with?
1: I think that things can be both objective and biased by making these decisions which get encoded in data. I think perhaps the bias can actually be more easily introspected. But certainly I would not make the case that data scientific methods lack bias. And certainly I think that there are a lot of subjective decisions that are made during the data scientific process during experiments. Still, there is something that feels pure about quantitative approaches and working with numbers that maybe it's just the ability to kind of introspect decisions albeit perhaps not in the deep learning context that...
0: Oh, yeah, but of course, we have a big push that hopefully will be increasing towards causal machine learning. And of course, one of the first things I saw you ask about on Twitter, actually, when I first started seeing you around was around the woeful adoption of causal inference in our shared discipline. And you were very helpful in providing fantastic proofreading for a causal inference report I wrote for O'Reilly as well, which I, I appreciate.
1: Yeah, it's funny because I feel like the answer to my question, why isn't causal inference more widely adopted, actually seemed to be like fairly consistent, which was just like, it's hard. I can accept that, but how do we make it easier?
0: Absolutely. And I think we need to, oh, this is dangerous. Where my mind goes is we need to answer questions about like foundational modern data, postmodern, what it would like data stack stuff, right? Like I'm not going to unbundle any of these terms yet. And I might even edit out using the word unbundle because that's been, I think I've blocked it on Twitter recently. I'm very interested in your trajectory from a practitioner to the decision to become an investor and what that looked like and why.
1: Yeah. No, it's funny because for somebody who has always like embraced science who like loves like objectives and processes and rigor my approach to my own career has been very well not rigorous to say the least
0: i'm the same i'm actually i joke that my career has been dada not data (laughs) yes we say data instead of data but it has been like kind of surrealist brush strokes i've noticed the same in a lot of scientists actually as well
1: yeah totally i mean when i was still in college so there have been like a couple of things that have kind of influenced my trajectory i initially thought i was going to go into i-banking or consulting i've been studying statistics and so it kind of seemed like a natural path to going to finance. But then the economy tanked, and I saw my friends having like their job offers pulled and everything. So I figured I would just instead focus on something that I was like really excited about and passionate about. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, 9-11 had had a real impact on me, and I remained kind of obsessed with this question of understanding why terrorist groups commit these acts of atrocity. So I ended up Going into the defense and intelligence sector. But I think, like, somewhere on the through the depths of the internet, like maybe on Facebook, there was one of those like answer 10 questions about yourself. And so, like, there is a digital record of me saying at age 21 that my goal was to become US Secretary of Defense. And clearly that did not happen.
0: Well, not yet.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I know. Yeah. Next up, Pentagon. Exactly. First Sand Hill Road. (laughs) <laughs> then the Pentagon. <laughs> but I you know, thought I was going to kind of stay in the defense and intelligence sector. But I think what I discovered at some point was like, I actually loved tech. And I loved like data science almost more than I loved the application to the public sector. But also like life brings you in weird places. At the time, when I was at Palantir, still kind of in the defense and intelligence space, I was dating somebody in San Francisco. I wanted to move out to the Bay Area and Palantir didn't have any open roles. And so I called a friend. I said, "Like, I know how to do things with data. Where should I go work? And he ended up connecting me to Danielle Morrill, who was the CEO of Mattermark at the time. Mattermark collected data on other startups and sold it to investors, including VCs. And I think I actually went into Mattermark to interview for a product role. Although I'd been at Palantir, although I'd been working for a defense contractor in the tech space prior to that. I didn't have like real startup experience. And so in looking at like various job listings, products seemed to be like the data focused position. And not many companies were hiring data scientists at the time. I don't even know if the term data science existed at the time. What year was this? So it was probably like 2012,
0: 13 Yeah. No, the term had been floating around for a year or two after I mean, DJ Patel and Tom... Um, yeah, like
1: 2012, right?
0: Yeah. And Jeff Hammerbacher and DJ, I think, coined it in 2008, but it didn't... It was around that time it started to... I
1: didn't know that. I always thought it was 2012 for some reason.
0: So that's when it became popularized. That's absolutely right. But it was coined a few years before.
1: Ah, got it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I looked at a job listing. I'm like, oh, product. says that they need to like look at data and yeah. make decisions. That sounds about right. But I went in for my final interview with Mattermark and Kevin Morrell, the, the CTO of, of the company, he comes into the room and he says, I have good news, I have bad news. The bad news is that we're not hiring you for a product position. We, we already hired a head of product. The good news is we want you to build our data team. Great. I've got a job. This sounds awesome. And I think in many ways, the timing actually was very opportune because I had the opportunity to build a data science and ML team as well as kind of the analytics function um, and data engineering function at a time when you know ML had just really started to take off. As I mentioned before, you know, Mattermark was collecting data on other startups and selling it to investors. We had a relatively small team, and so we needed ways to collect data about startups at scale. So we ended up developing like an LP fact extraction pipeline so that we could automatically collect information, from news articles. We had Bayesian classifiers to determine company industry, all sorts of stuff. But again, kind of ended up in venture by accident. One of our customers like reached out and said like, Hey, have you ever considered doing investing? (laughs) And... I hadn't really. Like I thought maybe like the people with whom I worked or the people to whom we sold the Mattermark product were interesting. And like maybe it was something I'd consider doing one day, but not for like another ten years. But the opportunity seemed exciting and so I Kind of ended up in BC by accident.
0: Cool. And did you go to Amplify then?
1: No. So I spent a year and a half ish at a firm called Canvas, which was like a good learning slash self discovery process for me. Canvas was like a great place for me to kind of learn the venture ropes. And I think I realized during my time there that I really did love investing, but I was neither good at nor very passionate about investing in any category. Canvas is what we call a generalist firm. So they do consumer, marketplace, enterprise investing. I was far more passionate about like GPU accelerated databases and Kubernetes as a service. And I really like could not give a bleep about like next generation wedding registries or like, dog walking marketplaces. Not to say that like those things don't really matter. I just don't care <laughs> about that.
0: Would you clearly care about data tooling and yeah allowing data scientists to leverage the best technology and best products possible
1: yeah yeah i think you know as a vc too like you want to care about the things that you invest in like we end up spending hours and hours each week with our portfolio companies so having our like intellectual interests aligned that actually i think really matters like I'm able to work harder on behalf of my portfolio companies because I care about what they're doing. So I joined Amplify to really focus on investing in data tools and platforms, Yeah, but it was not my first venture gig.
0: And so what is your kind of broad mission for you personally at Amplify? Like what do you want to achieve in this position?
1: So this is where I get like very critical of like the VC field writ large. Anybody in venture has two goals it is to optimize TVPI and IRR. We are in this to make money.
0: Can you tell us what those acronyms are for your LPs? Yeah. Can you spell out all the acronyms we just vomited?
1: Yeah, so TVPI is total value paid in, and IRR is internal rate of return. And so like those are metrics that essentially measure how much capital are we generating based on you know, what was invested into Amplify?
0: And LPs are limited partners, and they're the people who invest in your funds.
1: Yes. And like, our, our LPs are incredible. There are, Many of them come from academic institutions or pension funds, where they're you know, managing the retirement plans of you know, people who do really, really, important work for the United States and you the society. But when you hear VC say that like, oh, their goal is to like change the way in which people interface with technology or, you know, do this, that, or the other thing, like, no, one thing that I do appreciate about venture is that we actually have very clear KPIs and objectives, and they are to really just maximize the profitability of potential investments. That does not mean that I don't care about data.
0: Well, it's a two-sided coin, right? Like for any company I've worked for, our mission is to make money and a sustainable business. But we also have another mission, which may be to educate people or to build human-centric products for data scientists or to give distributed systems as a service to people wanting to use the PyData stack. Or I've just listed several jobs I've had essentially, but it's a two-sided coin of Making the Benjamins, so to speak, and also perhaps doing something else. I very much appreciate your transparency there as well though.
1: Yeah, that is very, very true. And I would say that like we have kind of a broader goal of empowering technical founders. You know, certainly I think like one of my personal objectives is to enable companies to use data in meaningful ways and effectively to like Make the lives of my former colleagues, former reports, et cetera, slightly better. Having been in that that you know, position, I, it's it's tough. So, so like there are other things that really motivate me, but I think particularly as a former data scientist, I'm intrigued by how we try to kind of align a company strategy, fund strategy, and though our personal motivations, what very often are just clear like revenue or clear like financial metrics and i think if we are more transparent those financial metrics matter and that this is an alignment problem that we need to think about like company mission fund mission in the context of these metrics as well frankly i think we can do better work like it it can have a very focusing effect
0: and in terms of alignment there's another form of alignment that you and i are very interested in which is the alignment of tools for working data professionals. Data star, like engineer, analyst, whatever, right? We call them data stars. That's great. Insert regex into professional nomenclature. Yeah. So that our data stars, building tools to help them do their jobs. And you and I are in this paradox of constantly talking and thinking about tools in a landscape that's so noisy and bloated, but. We're doing it in order to help people do their jobs. And something, a place I want to go with this is, when thinking about building tools for data stars or any industry, we need to think about pattern recognition for what flows actually look like and the potential of what they can can look like. So where are we at even performing pattern recognition for data professionals more generally? with a view to how we think about building tools?
1: Yeah, no, it's interesting because I think like it really depends what category of data we're talking about. Frankly, I think like the analytics stack has has matured at a much faster pace in recent years than the data science and machine learning stack. It's something that I've been thinking about for a while, including as I evaluate potential investments in the ML stack I think there were a couple of things that happened in analytics that really unlocked opportunity for those building tools, for those adopting tools. One of those things was certainly the adoption of cloud data warehouses. And I think the adoption of cloud data warehouses mattered not only in that it was a consistent behavior across several companies and organizations, but also the data warehouse effectively became a system of record for the analytics stack, so that any new vendor… And kind
0: a of standard, right?
1: Yeah, a standard. Well, it's like both a standard and a system of record. So others could build on top of the, the right. data warehouse because it was both standard and a system of record. I think there were other standards, though, that emerged, too. So, for example, like the transition from ETL to ELT, you had companies that were now transforming data within the data warehouse, which often meant that they were dumping more raw data into the data warehouse. Frankly, I think that's created more opportunity for like data testing and monitoring tools, certainly created opportunity for the ELT tools, is now creating opportunity for those that are building metrics layers. But there was this change in behavior. It became standard to you know, transform your data once it was in the data warehouse and then you had like the emergence of clear roles too and this is something that i give a lot of credit to dbt which is another amplify portfolio company they really built kind of a community of analytics engineers that agreed upon like what the expectations were for the role and asserted the importance of the role to the, the broader organization so you have now you know a set of behaviors you have a system of record and you have clearly defined roles and frankly I think like those three things have really enabled the modern data stack to take off in very powerful ways that hasn't happened in ML and i need to constantly remind myself that like we are in the earliest innings that you know the analytics ecosystem had decades and decades to evolve. But it can be very frustrating because I don't see that much kind of consolidation or homogeneity in ML around roles. Definitely not that much around like behaviors and workflows. And what's the system of record? I don't know. You ask some people, they'll say, like, it is an experiment. Others will say, it is your labeled data. Others will say, it's your features. Others will say, it is a deployed prediction service. Like, it's really hard to build great ML tools today because. It isn't clear like what you should integrate with. I think like the lack of like a system of record has compelled many ML companies to build you know end to end platforms. It isn't clear for whom, like Sir, for whom you exist. I still see kind of a split between orgs that think you know data scientists should work end to end, and those that think data scientists should be paired with ML engineers. I'm starting to see like a little bit more kind of concentration with regards to like the latter, the pairing of the data scientist and ml engineer. but there's still a ton of dissonance in terms of like what the expectations are for the ml engineer. Some companies will say that like the ml engineer is exists to basically build an application around. A deployed prediction service. So the data scientist needs to be able to deploy their own models. Others believe that like, the ML engineer should be responsible for deployment. So, so even if we're getting some clarity on what roles may exist, there's no clarity on what the definition of that role is or of those roles are. Then when you even think about like practices for best practices for training and deploying models, like some companies will say that you should try to deploy a randomly weighted model so that you can better understand your system requirements. And so like really training and deployment are not sequential processes, like they ought to be interleaved. Others have like very kind of concrete or discrete like phases of their training and deployment. So. How do you build something great for everybody when there's just so much heterogeneity in terms of roles, tools, workflows, and behaviors? I think you know, the opportunity is really for a vendor you know, similar to DBT, similar to Snowflake, similar to 5Tran, to like have an opinion and really uh, kind of catalyze the ML community to stand behind that opinion to support a consistent set of best practices. I don't even know that like those best practices need to be best. They just need to be standard, Well, <laughs> practiced.
0: Practices, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Why would it be from a vendor and not an open source solution?
1: I mean, it could be from an open source solution too. I don't think it does necessarily need to be a vendor. It could be one ML engineer.
0: I don't know if this is something open source, yeah is necessarily well equipped to solve like at scale organizational challenges i think open source is and you know and all listeners you know i love open source so don't at me with some bs about a well, vendor blah 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 but i think open source is phenomenal has proved to be phenomenal in the data space at solving individuals challenges but thinking about collaborative tools that prepared for it for all of the things that an organization needs i'm not convinced and also I don't think open source has been fantastic at the deployment story. So, you know, my background is in for the most part in a Pi data world when it comes to open source, although I spent a lot of time with the R community. And this Pi data stack came out of science, right? Came out of neuroscientists and geologists and astronomers staring into the sky and building software to figure out what the heck was going on up up there. But they weren't necessarily interested in the deployment and production story. And it's not clear how much open source can help this entire stack. So anyway, those are my reasons for thinking that vendors may.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think like you need kind of like cult of personality, too. Like, there are certainly examples, albeit open source projects that did eventually become commercial, but within the software development world of these projects that did end up shaping behavior, that did end up shaping the way that roles would be defined. I think like about Docker, I think about Kafka, but would those projects have such a profound effect if you didn't have like Jay craps evangelizing the log-centric architecture and the primacy of the log, or Solomon Hikes,
0: this is also a big part of the venture capital play at the moment as well, right? Is to find people doing interesting open source projects and trying to figure out whether this is something that's productizable.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly, I think we spend a lot of time thinking about like. Is this something that's productizable? But I think another thing that we do need to consider both as VCs and like for the future of the data science and ML community is like, is this team, is this group of people committed to evangelizing their opinions and like setting a standard? Will they drag a community kicking and screaming to their way knowing that until there's a way tools are kind of going to suck. Like you need to have, like tools should support workflows. Tools should support the set of behaviors. And humans. In humans. And if humans are just all doing different things, it's really hard to build great tools. But if you tell humans what to do, then you can build great tools to help them do the thing that you tell them to do.
0: And if you talk with them about what they want to do and try to perform pattern recognition there as well. So this actually, I love your historical tether of the analytics space. I wonder what else we can learn from web development, right? Because we used to have the webmaster, right? And there has always been the joke for the past decade, I wonder if the data scientist will go the way of the webmaster and front end and back end and all of these things. So I wonder if there's something in there that we can use to think about what division of labor will look like in five to 10 years. What ideally would division of labor look like to you in this space? I
1: think one of the things that's interesting in thinking about like web development is that Specialization is kind of a spectrum. You don't meet that many people that are like pure front-end or pure back-end anymore. Like most front-end developers know a little bit of back-end. Most back-end developers know a little bit of front-end. And I feel like when we talk about the data scientist and the ML engineer, the ideas that I've heard about those roles tend to be like rather black and white we don't think about like data scientists who know a little bit of ml engineering or ml engineers who know a little bit about like creating new algorithms and maybe we need to have more conversation about like what those gray areas will be such that we can build tools that enable data scientists to do ml engineering ml engineers to do data science but also, most critically, data scientists and ML engineers to communicate and interface more effectively. I've become like more and more of a believer that having that specialization matters. Having a data scientist and an ML engineer on your team is probably a good idea. But I don't think that those roles need to be very, very rigorously defined. And in fact, like. If they are, it may have a negative
0: impact. Yeah, I like the idea of fuzzy boundaries and overlap there. I think that's key, particularly in such technical roles, which as we still figure them out as well. I mean, I've said this on this podcast before, I think, but the amount of times I've seen early stage startups hire their first data scientist without a data engineer, they become a data engineer for 12 to 24 months, usually on the upper end of that range. Are there any other historical examples that could be useful in thinking this through?
1: Gosh, I'm sure there are. I just have not thought about the others as much. I've definitely thought a bit about kind of like DevOps and the container, the development of the modern data stack.
0: This question can go in a different way, actually, because you mentioned DevOps. What can DevOps tell us about, quote unquote, MLOps and whether there's even a difference there, whether we need new things for MLOps?
1: You need a manifesto. I kind of joke that way, but I think what matters in DevOps is like, there's a clear set of practices or clear set of kind of best practices, and not everybody needs to adopt all of those practices all at the same time. But if you talk to 10 people in DevOps about what good looks like, you're not going to get wildly different responses. I'm sure that you will get somewhat different responses, but if you could like measure the variance in MLOps and the variance in DevOps, my guess is that MLOps is going to be a much higher.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I want to drill down into tooling a bit more. It constantly feels like now there are both way too many tools and not enough tools. And why is this the case?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's the case because most of the tools are bad. (laughs) Um, or, Or like the tools aren't bad. Most of the tools are great for a very narrow set of people and bad for the rest. Because again, like tools ought to serve their users. They ought to help them do their job more effectively but ml jobs and ml people are like so different right now that i think it's it's really hard to build great tools so i think there are a lot of tools
0: yeah even like if it serves a small amount of people it often only serves a small amount of their job as well in their pipeline right so yeah you have to have almost this collection of interoperable connected Layers, right?
1: Well, and I think that that is a key word too. Like tools ought to interoperate, and you do see that very clearly with you know the modern data stack. Many of these tools have formal integrations and partnerships. I think part of the challenge that we see in the ML space is that few of any tools have really gotten critical adoption. So if you're thinking about like who should I integrate with, or like what integrations do we want to develop that's
0: really hard yeah and you're preaching to the choir on that one as i'm sure you understand also you and our mutual friend and colleague pete Soderling, last year or the year before had a series of blog posts called 25 was the first one the next one was 20 i think tools what they do and don't do so but and this was incredible gave a lot of value to the community but the fact that you even had to do a blog post or that that provided value, like listing 25 tools and what they do and don't do, then another 20, that says something about the space, right?
1: Oh, 100%. I mean, if you were to sample like 10 ML tools at random and go to their website and then try to write down what each of them did, you'd have no idea what is a direct competitor, what is an indirect competitor, and which of those tools should you know, partner or develop integrations? Like everything is a platform. And I think there, it's just so difficult for you know, potential buyers to determine what tools do, for you know, potential partners to identify partnership opportunities, for VCs to navigate conflicts
0: of interest. Let's just think about the buyer for a second. Like. If each role has a bunch of steps in their pipeline and they need a different tool for each one, how often they have to speak with vendors, even boggles my mind, right? In order to get all their tooling correct. So how do we even, how can we help people navigate that part of the space?
1: If the messaging and positioning is clear and reflects what the tool can do, and if they focused on kind of developing a great, like self-serve onboarding experience, then it's actually fine. Again, if I look at like the analytics tools, in order to move data into and out-of-the-data warehouse, you have an ELT tool, you have a data warehouse, you have a data transform tool, like a DDT, you might have a metrics layer, you might have a reverse ETL tool, you might have a data monitoring tool, you might have a data testing tool. Like I'm already at eight, and yet people in that space are content because these tools are easy to adopt. They all like integrate well together. And so does it really matter that you ha- have eight tools if it feels like you're using one? You can have best of breed. The contracts are like pretty simple to navigate. You may never need to even talk to a salesperson. I mean, I think there are issues that arise like as companies scale, as you're thinking about observing these end-to-end pipelines and so I don't think that like eight is ideal but does it have to be one probably not like it can probably be like four or five and somewhere between eight pipeline or a stack composed of like 10 best of breed tools and a stack composed of like one average platform there's got to be I think a happy medium
0: And when will this happen, though? Because at the moment, I mean, even as you say, navigating websites and figuring out what tools do, then speaking to maybe 10 different monitoring companies or whatever it is, then trying to navigate which ones you think will survive as well. Because a lot of these are early to middle stage startups that we don't even know will be around in three years. So what type of risk are you taking on when doing that? So when do you foresee? I'm asking this is channeling your internal neural networks and machine learning here, but... When do you see this leveling out in some way when it's, when there are more obvious choices for buyers?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I hoped it would have happened by now. <laughs> Again, the, the one thing that gives me...
0: Isn't it worse than it was a year ago right now? Or am I, do I need to put on my rosy colored glasses?
1: Yeah, but I think like it's always going to get worse before it gets better. Like you'll have, you know, the Cambrian explosion of the tools and platforms before like some emerges dominant. I think one thing that I had mentioned earlier that I am seeing is like a little bit more companies that are moving to a model where a data scientist works with an ML engineer. So, okay. It's one thing, but frankly, I would have expected more best practices to emerge. I would have expected more ML tools and platforms to get critical adoption. And I think we're almost at a point where, like, we don't need more tools. We need big personalities. We need people who believe that there is a right way to do machine learning. And
0: People with strong worldviews.
1: Yes, yeah. Yeah. And are, like, committed to converting people to their worldview. The benefits of standardization, I think, are can be like very clear. When you have a critical mass of people who are working in a similar way, it is far easier for startups to emerge, to like serve their needs, for open source communities to like flourish for communities in general to succeed, and then for others to start thinking about like, how do I integrate with this way? So how do we get there at this point? Like, I think it's just personality. (laughs) Great tech, strong opinions.
0: Yeah, great. And so I'm interested if we're doing a bit of prediction, what best and worst case scenario of what the ML tooling space looks like in five years and or 10 years?
1: I mean, I think the worst-case scenario is that we continue on the path that we're on, where there are 25,000 ML stacks today. There, like, No two ML teams share any you know, workflows or organizational structures in, in common. I think the worst-case scenario is basically like a world without best practices or a world without you know, standards. Best case scenario, I think, is a world where there has been standardization, there is a dominant design for the ML stack. Perhaps like the analytics ecosystem, we go through a phase where there's probably still a bit too many tools, and then there's some consolidation, but we don't end up with like end-to-end, we still have kind of a more modular ML stack, and alternatives for most of the components so that even though there's standardization there's a set of best practices those can still be adapted to meet you know more specific contexts but without people to kind of fight for that i don't think that that is something that is just going to happen naturally
0: that makes sense i'm also wondering in terms of like these shared patterns worldviews processes workflows division of labor is there an argument that it should differ industry to industry or type of company to, so for example, I think we've realized that FANG tools, like Google scale tools, maybe for the long tail of machine learning, most of us don't need Kubernetes, for example, perhaps. That's just an example that I don't really think, I don't want to dive into a Kubernetes discussion, but is there an argument that these stacks should look different for different disciplines and or types of companies?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's why I say, like, I think it's important to have, like, alternatives. And it's important to be able to adapt these components to your context. You can have standards, you can have a community that agrees upon a set of best practices, while also acknowledging that, like, those standards and best practices are not going to be best for everybody. And so, like, there will be outliers, like, companies that adopt a modern data stack centered on, you know, Snowflake or...
0: But part of the problem is that we're, our mindshare has been co-opted. I'm using slightly negative terms, but let's just get over that. Has been co-opted by the outliers, right?
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's very true. I think it's not just our mindshare. I think a lot of the kind of early activity in ML...
0: Defined by, yeah.
1: ...tools and platforms came out of... was defined by the fame companies because they had data. But, you know, now we're starting to see more companies kind of build their own ML tools and platforms. It's kind of like that set right beyond the thing, or at least like right beyond, I guess it's not Facebook anymore,
0: meta. (laughs) Whatever it is. Yeah. Google,
1: yeah, and Amazon. So, you know, whether it's, you know, Uber, Netflix, Airbnb, even some of the kind of like New generation of unicorn companies, the Stripes and Brexes and notions of the world. So I, I think it's, it's this kind of set of companies that may be able to kind of define what should be best practice where they're at a scale that you know other earlier stage companies aspire to be but that scale is within reach <laughs> it's not
0: Google scale yeah and I think there's also an argument that we don't hear a lot about it because of Google's comms incentives but they do a lot of what we would call reasonable scale machine learning within Google and Netflix but they just it isn't the type of stuff they publicize so much right yeah
1: and the other thing that I found interesting too is that we're talking about like personality and you know open source communities open source projects like if you look at like the Pi data Community, like you've got personalities and you have people who were like wedded to their project. I don't see kind of the same commitment even among like to tool builders in the ML ecosystem. People kind of like bounce between like various projects. And I think, you know, that has probably also hurt the evolution of the ML ecosystem. I think you're
0: right. We've used the term modern data stack enough for me to want to drill down into what that actually means to you and to our community?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, frankly, I think like what it, it is somewhat marketing jargon, but like, I guess, the next step beyond standards, best practices and systems of record is marketing brainwash. But I think that the modern data stack really just means these set of tools that are focused primarily on like descriptive analytics and experimentation that are closely coupled to the cloud data warehouse.
0: That's what I was thinking. I'm glad you mentioned marketing brainwash. That dovetails quite neatly with something I'd like to pick your brain about. And this is a challenging conversation for me. I mean, it comes from a lot of self-reflection around my career, where I'm at, what I want to do in the future. As you know, historically, I've done a lot of evangelism. I'm now running developer relations at of Bounds. I've done a lot of work as I've been on marketing teams and ran marketing teams. And what we would call in like is kind of Modern marketing, part of the rationale behind that, I think a lot of the world, a lot of the professional world has been subsumed into marketing due to the data that's available to marketers, among other reasons. Also, developers are generally skeptical of marketing. And what that means is that developer relations and evangelism has emerged in its own right. And as you know, I've worked with, I speak with a lot of founders, a lot of investors. I've worked with a lot of startups um, in order to help their developer relations and marketing efforts. And I do like to kind of reflect on Let's say the negative externalities, what I do in my work. And I do think there's an argument that marketers, such as quote unquote, I'm still can't refer to myself as a marketer. I mean, this almost feels like therapy now. I love it. But I think there is an argument that there's some form of tragedy of the commons in the tooling space. And in kind of the information-abundant landscape, when I create a lot of content for a portfolio of companies, I do wonder what where I'm creating signal, where I'm creating noise. I do think with all the investment coming into the tooling landscape now, we're both at a point where there's an argument that we are contributing to a tragedy of the commons in some ways, in terms of having these portfolios. And in particular, a tragedy of the commons for data stars, data practitioners, data scientists. And each company that I've worked with, I feel like this is actually valuable. But this is my own personal opinion, right? And I think you're actually in a similar yet distinct position. So I'm wondering how you think about this aspect of creating signal versus noise, and when you're doing good for the space and what the negative externalities might actually be.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, like, as, as I've reflected upon this conversation, like, I still think that, like, the marketing does more good than harm. I think the evangelism does more good than harm because, again, I think we need communities. We need communities that are aligned on a set of standards, a set of best practices, we need communities that like believe in the way. And how do you get that without like marketing, dev evangelism, etc.? So, so I think like this is highly necessary. I think where there's some of the marketing and messaging has gone wrong is that there's a lot of like marketing around the vision for tools and not really like what tools allow their users to do today.
0: Yeah, where they unblock you at work. What are you doing that this thing helps you do so you can give what you need to give to whoever you need to give it to, right?
1: So what does this tool actually do?
0: Yeah, that's why your blog posts are so fascinating. What does it do and what doesn't it do? Come on. Yeah. I know it's a cloud SaaS product, dude. Sorry, I'm going to stop now, but like, tell me more, right?
1: No, 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 no.
0: I know it's multi. I know your offering's multi-cloud, but what the beep does it do?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think like this though is an area where VC can have a kind of like nefarious effect because we want to hear about like the billion-dollar vision. We don't want to hear about the widget that'll get you to like you know a million, five million ARR. But the widget that gets you to a million, five million ARR is the thing that like practitioners need to know about. They need to know how this tool helps them today, not like the multi-billion dollar company that like the tool will be in the future. And I think you know, in many ways, the tool, the widget aligns more clearly with the standards that emerge than like the big vision. It's much easier to standardize something specific than it is to like standardize a like 10 year vision.
0: So what I'm hearing is that there's a potential misalignment of incentives due to the way capital works. Is that one way to phrase it?
1: I guess, I mean, I think capital encourages people to think big, but standardization starts small.
0: Right, is that fixable? Is there somewhere we can meet in the middle?
1: Yeah, I think it is imminently fixable. You can have a multi-billion dollar vision and start small by building a tool that helps a large enough set of people with like some part of their workflow, driving standardization there.
0: Twilio is one of my favorite examples of that, actually, I think, is that something that resonates?
1: I mean, absolutely. I think Twilio certainly is a great example and...
0: Stripe as well, actually.
1: Yeah, there are so many companies where like, if we can describe the tool in a pretty similar way, without you know hearing each other's response, like that's probably a good thing. I think like maybe we just need to be kind of more forthcoming when we're interfacing with our colleagues or you know when I'm interfacing with my portfolio companies like when are you pitching the vision and when are you you know solving a problem? and when should we be talking about the vision and when should we be talking about the problem
0: this is one of the first conversations you and i had when i was considering joining Outer bounds yeah and of course you're an early investor in Outer bounds
1: yeah no i remember that we were yeah talking about like the vocabulary and how do you put into words what outer bounds does so that anybody can understand it so that people do understand the set of problems that they solve and frankly i think like it's easy for me to like preach. Oh, you know, our portfolio companies, founders, etc., should be specific about the the problems that they're solving. Like, it's kind of hard when you're building technical tools. Like, it can be hard to like put that feeling of using a tool like Metaflow into words.
0: Yeah, very much so, and it's a work in progress. I am interested in whether there's also a similar never. Well, I mentioned the negative externality that I think marketing can have, especially when you have a portfolio. I'm going to say kind of tell a narrative here which may or may not be right and and I may not even understand all the details of what I'm saying but I want to get your take on this. In my mind, a VC firm succeeds by having a portfolio of companies from which a handful succeed, right? So there's an incentive to have a wide portfolio and you don't need everything to win in order to make money for your firm and your LPs. When that happens, there is an incentive to perhaps try a bunch of things which may not be in all in the favor of the end user and take risks which can, I suppose, pollute the landscape. I've used a, a bunch of negative critical words there, but I'm wondering what your take on that is and how you think about that.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think the thing though that we need to take into account too is that while we don't have an expectation that all of our portfolio companies will be successful, we do also have a pretty strong incentive to make sure that our companies don't lose or like don't go horribly wrong. So like not everything is going to be a Decacorn, but we try to make sure that things don't go to zero because when they go to zero, like there could be like a five to $10 million like gaping hole in our portfolio. And now we need to account for that by ensuring that, you know, we have more winners there. So we still, well, we know that not everything is going to go to a billion. We're also heavily incentivized to make sure that the remaining things don't go to zero. That, like, we've got you know, a couple of hits where, like, I don't know anything about baseball, but like, we get to like first base or second base, but it doesn't have to be a home run.
0: That makes sense.
1: And I think that that incentive you know, forces us to be a bit more prudent about like where and how we invest now that is something that is like somewhat unique to amplify our approach is to concentrate capital so we only do like 20 to 30 investments per fund across six check writers if we were investing in 60 75 companies like we wouldn't have the same incentive because we wouldn't have, you know, five, $10 million at risk in any given
0: one. I'm just, I mean, your portfolio is cool, Sarah. I mean, I'm looking at with DBT and Hex. I mean, there's all types of the hit rate, in my opinion, and the bets you've made really strong. Apologies for stroking your ego, but it was, I believe that.
1: I love the ego stroking and, and, you know, I would say that...
0: Tell me about it. My
1: bet on Outer Bounds was pretty good too, (laughs) but...
0: And you ain't seen nothing yet.
1: Yeah. I will say that like one of the hardest things for me as a specialist investor though, is like navigating these conflicts of interest. Like we work very closely with our portfolio companies. So like I try my damn best to make sure that I'm not investing in, in competitors, but even when I have not perfect, but like near perfect visibility into what a company is building and what they want to build in the future. I think so many of these tech stacks are still so nebulous that like, Sometimes they collide and you know, that probably does speak to some of the kind of more dangerous tailwinds that we've,
0: we've discussed. Totally. I think that leads nicely to the other types of what we're missing here. I actually, as you know, I had a question with all our focus and conversations on tools. We're missing a lot of other conversations and I want to know what you think the conversations we're missing. And I actually just saw you tweeted out the other day something relevant. You wrote, "Tell me how you're using in block quotes data." I'm sick of hearing about how you're producing. I love reading things you've written to you for some reason. So tell me how you're using data. I'm sick of hearing about how you're producing data or building data stacks. As one great data scientist once said, "The only stacks that matter are those of Benjamins." And you've got this great GIF of I think it's from Chappelle Show, it just him like it's maybe it's the Wu Tang Chappelle stuff, but he's like raining.
1: I think that's Cardi B, but yeah, close enough.
0: Oh right. <laughs> Holy moly, I may edit that out, but it, maybe not because, yeah, but she's got the wig on. Okay, let's forget about the GIF, but I'm definitely not going to edit that out. But yeah, how people using data and what conversations are we missing through all the stuff all the time we're talking about tools?
1: Yeah. So one of the tougher conversations that I've had in the past month was with a colleague, who's actually doing like her PhD on MLSYS-related problems. And the topic of conversation was, will ML enable us to build better products? Like, is ML even important? Or are most of the problems that people have, most of the product opportunities that exist, not related to intelligence and automation? Like, are they better solved with, I don't know, like, stronger wireless connectivity or faster data or whatever it might be.
0: This actually speaks to marketing bullshit as well. Like we do live in some form of speculative bubble as to the power of ML and that ML is applicable to every single problem, right? And we need to slice through that. So that's just something that resonated with me there.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we started kind of like brainstorming about this. Like, what are the problems that you face in your day-to-day? And of those problems, like, which should or could be solved with machine learning? Now, as somebody who actually... Doesn't have her driver's license. Like, I'm big on AV. Like, I would like to, I don't like driving. I did have my driver's license at what point in my life, but like, I would like my car to drive me around. That is something that I really would like to exist. And that does hinge on machine learning. Now, conversely, there are Uber, Lyft, are the problems that I experience with those apps related to machine learning, like not really, like I just, it's more of like a latency and performance and scaling thing. Like I'd like the app to be faster.
0: Although there's stuff that they do that's really important to them, like pricing, which has impacts on us, of course.
1: Yeah. So this is all to say that like there are some problems that machine learning can solve and some problems that machine learning need not solve. And I think like even just having more dialogue around like, what are people using ML for today? And then what types of data are they using? What types of models are they using? I think like if we start with like what are the applications and back down from there, we can have much more rigorous conversations or interesting conversations. In fact, one another Amplify portfolio founder texted me today and said, like, hey, do you know there's a list of like ML use cases somewhere? And I thought about it. No, like, I don't think that exists.
0: Yeah, there must be something. And if not, we should build it. I was just saying there's an incredible GitHub repository of ML fails, which of course is the opposite, but I think it's as instructive. I think developing a taxonomy of negative use cases as well and failure modes is incredibly important. I've just seen another tweet from you, which is relevant to this conversation. Has anyone asked sales leaders, account executives, or SDRs, if they actually want, or even care about a CRM built upon the modern data stack. Yeah. Because maybe they're doing fine without it, right? Yeah. I don't think they are. Yeah. But that doesn't mean the modern data stack is the solution, right?
1: No, exactly, exactly. I think like we have ended up in the same mode that we know is so toxic, where we are pushing technologies we're pushing for like use cases and applications based on what that technology unlocks, rather than thinking about like what are the problems that people have, what are the problems that they say that they have, what are the opportunities that we see, and what is the best technology or best technical approach to addressing those. Like, there's so much like first principles thinking that's happening, and. We've both been in data long enough to remember 10, 15 years ago, like all of the companies that were like, I've got a bunch of data. How can I use this like fancy schmancy AI stuff and create value? And you have to like shake them and be like, no, tell me about your business problems, and then we can think about how you can apply AI to your data and or do other things with your data to potentially solve those problems. And Oh, man, it makes me so frustrated to like see companies falling down the same rabbit hole that we went through 10 years ago.
0: Are there like some game theoretic incentives at play as well? Like when one player does it in an industry, then it's like, oh, yeah, these so-and-so is doing this, so we need an AI strategy, and then you hire a bunch of people. It costs you millions of dollars, and it doesn't necessarily deliver value. When it isn't delivering value, a lot of time teams will pivot, do stuff for different stakeholders, package things to package up to seem like it's delivering value, and it does create a speculative bubble in the industry as a whole, right? Totally.
1: Yeah. And look, like sometimes the the game theoretic forces I think can actually be, be beneficial. So for example, like the real estate sector, I think is probably like more advanced in its adoption of machine learning than many other industries. But I think participants in ML in the real estate sector actually are having conversations around what are the problems that our businesses have that should be solved with machine learning, that can be solved with machine learning, and that can be reliably solved with machine learning. So they're having conversations around problems, not just around technologies. And I think those conversations around problems determining maybe we're not going to use ML for pricing, maybe instead we're going to use ML for like lead generation or lead prioritization.
0: I love that you said that because I agree, but also, We saw what happened at Zillow last year, right? Okay.
1: That, I think, though, was a lot of finger-pointing at data science teams on what was just objectively like a bad business decision.
0: Yeah. Not only teams, but at the algorithm. Yeah. Finger-pointed at the algorithm, right?
1: They finger-pointed at the algorithm when, again it was a problem that could not be solved by any algorithm.
0: Well, that's why I love that you framed it in terms of maybe pricing isn't the best thing to use ML for, but lead scoring, and, these, and I actually think, we've talked about this before, but lead scoring, ranking algorithms are some of the best use cases of ML, particularly in an information abundant landscape, getting the right information to the right people at the right time in a certain rank, hands down.
1: Yeah. Yeah, particularly where that's a problem that matters to your business. Exactly. And in real estate it is. So like identifying the, these use cases that are important across various players in an industry and for which the technology is well suited, instead of just saying like, okay, we've got data and we've got this tech, like what models should we be using with what data sets and then like you know problems and, and priorities are secondary concern. It's a different way of thinking. It's arguably like better to think about what your objectives are rather than like what are the techniques that you use to solve those. But it seems like we've kind of regressed in terms of AI business strategy, if you will.
0: I know, of course, that global security is very dear to your heart. What other industries or disciplines or fields are you most excited about the applications of machine learning?
1: I told you, I'm waiting for my AV. It is slowly happening, but you know, apparently, like Waymo taxis are going to be in existence this year. It's a great question. I mean, I do think that there are opportunities to use ML to build better tools, including for you know various technical practitioners and you know some of the work that was done around like co-pilot is really phenomenal in terms of how it changes developer behaviors. I think there are kind of clear alignments of problems, datasets and technologies in the biotech sector or biopharma sector where we have massive data sets where the problems are in fact almost a scoring and ranking one, for example, with identifying like lead drug candidates so I see very kind of promising and real <laughs> applications of them all there. but honestly, I think often it's just kind of like those mundane problems. They're not very sexy. they're just things that people experience you know all the time and
0: spam detection.
1: Yes, spam detection. yeah
0: I mean, that's something we've done, Rob. But that's one of the most beautiful, beautiful things, I think. And I think it's probably not that hard. Like, dear sir, I am, or whatever, right? But I think these types of things are, are really obviously important.
1: Yeah, totally. What are like algorithmic innovations that have like impacted my behavior in a positive way? I do like autocomplete. Like, I forget idioms all the time. And so it's not necessarily that like I need AI to write an entire email for me. But like it's nice that I don't have to worry about remembering various idioms anymore if I'm using Google compose. Translation was one that I think is also really cool. It's awesome being able to like travel the world and know that I can communicate with anybody because you know the translation apps have gotten so good. I think that's one that has like really changed the way in which people interact and that's super cool. So we need more conversations like this. Like, wow, AI enables me to communicate with anybody in the world. Like that was not possible before.
0: Totally. And another example that I really like that I've discussed on this podcast before with two people, with Rachel Tatman, who um is at Raza now, and Heather Knowles, who runs she's a principal machine learning engineer at T Mobile, but conversational AI, chatbots, right? So not only what they can provide, but how to incorporate them into human workflows. So The fact that if you have a conversational AI, do you want to actually serve important responses solely from that AI or chatbot, or do you want a human in the loop in some way? So the chatbot can tell them kind of the message that they'd want to send and the human can massage it or these types of things, right? So figuring out what that... Essentially, it's how we think about cybernetics, how we think incorporating humans and machines into workflows. And I think that will probably be key in this process as well. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And thinking about how do we still afford agency to humans when they're interfacing with algorithmic systems?
0: And how do we roll out algorithms? I'm stating this example because I think it's non-controversial, but in support systems, in organizations, if you're going to roll out a chatbot, do support for customers. One mode that I've seen work really well is first you roll it out internally so that it's real people doing the support with the chatbot helping them figure it out, and once that flow becomes works really well and you know it gives responses which actually make people happy and satisfy the customer, then you can begin to roll it out slowly to customers as well. Yeah,
1: totally. I mean, I think the cool thing too that this reminded me of is like sometimes the interaction... Uh, of humans and ML systems actually like changes human behavior in really cool ways. So another one of Amplify's portfolio companies is called Renway and Renway has been focused on uh, developing like ML driven video editing tools, but also creating kind of this marketplace where they make various models accessible to creatives. and. Many people, I think, often like conflate ML with automation. And there's some fear that like ML will, you know, get rid of jobs. And so, if you think about ML and design, it's only natural to think like, oh, AI is going to like generate, you know, the next shoe. I remember speaking to somebody at New Balance about how they were using Runway, and he said to me like. Our biases or our ways of like seeing the world are actually so entrenched. And so they'll use these generative models to kind of like reimagine what a shoe can be. And it's not that they take those designs and just push them forward. but in fact like the models can help him as a designer think about like the shoe in a completely different way because he's so locked into like his existing kind of notions of like a heel or a soul and laces. And so to have you know, these models that like don't actually learn these con- or know these concepts in the same way as a human, it provided him with creative fodder. So yeah, it was like it's not models that are automating work. Instead, they're like amplifying human creativity. I like, thought that was just really cool.
0: Absolutely. I love that idea because um, during lockdown, I started getting back into playing chess. And firstly, like there's this concept of a centaur, a human and a machine playing on the same team, like a human informed by a machine, which is super cool. But where I wanted to go is I was watching, I don't know, like YouTube chess is full of like some real like energetic legend. Like people who put me to show they make me look like, say, a very quiet human being. But there are some real chess legends who uh, studied a bunch of games with AlphaGo and AlphaGo Zero, in which there were moves that AlphaGo Zero made that made no sense to the human right they're like that that is a totally oblique bizarre move and then a few moves later on it became apparent what space this actually opened up in the game. And it was a game that these people who, they're grandmasters and all that, but games they've never seen before because this one very strange move opened up a whole new space of creativity and combinatorial explosive options. And and I think that's really fascinating.
1: Yeah, it is cool to think not just how does AI replace our behavior, but how does it make us behave differently?
0: Is it also important how we, what we believe in them and what we don't? So I'm going to put this but i think the message is going to come through there was a study trust in robots and it was i think it was it had um a simulation human study in a building with a simulation of a fire and the experiment was a human directing people how to get out of the building and sorry that was the control and the experiment was a robot directing people and even when it was obvious that they were going the wrong direction the people trusted the robot more than they did the human When it was a human, they'd be like, dude, that's where the fire is. And when it was a robot, they were like, okay, the robot's probably not wrong. So thinking about more about what we, I mean, there are cases of people like driving off a pier because Google or driving down a one-way street and having an accident because Google Maps has told them to, right? So thinking about these things that I suppose create a lot more convenience in some ways, but having more uncertainty baked into it with respect to our relationship to it.
1: Yeah, I mean it's funny. I feel like we need to like learn how to empathize with ML systems. Like we need to learn to understand their shortcomings. We need to learn that the generative model has no concept of what a heel is or what a soul is. And you know some of this I think means not just marketing all of the amazing things that AI
0: can do, but also like
1: ML bloopers. I love it. Yeah.
0: We do need an ML fail blog. Yeah.
1: yeah. (laughs) If only to like help us start to think about what should we expect from these systems? How can we adapt our behavior to what they're good at and what we're good at and what they're bad at and what we're bad at?
0: I love that you mentioned the soul. And this is potentially an unorthodox question for such a podcast, but we're going there. What does becoming more and more Reliant on machines due to the human spirit and the human soul?
1: I don't think it needs to have any bad effect. You know, like we've been working with tools.
0: Maybe a good effect.
1: For ages. And I think the best tools make you think about what you do well and what you do poorly. The best tools, I think, make humans more human. I think, you know, there's a risk that like we try to automate away what makes us human. I think there's a risk that we build. Tools to mimic us instead of to complement us. Like, I often say, like, Amplify invests in machine intelligence and not artificial intelligence because I fundamentally don't believe in artificial intelligence. I don't think we should be building machines, robots, systems, software that just emulates human intelligence. Like, we've got plenty of humans. There are way too many humans. In fact, like, we don't need more. <laughs> but I think if we can be self aware about our own limitations and our own strengths and design tools that kind of complement us, I think machines should give us more soul.
0: I think so. And I do think part of the challenge is tools that nourish us, help us manifest ourselves, are incredibly important. But I think we do live in a landscape currently where a lot of the tools, I mean, We think about fan companies, for example, and I don't want to get too finger pointy, but I do want to say that the incentives of tools that provide something to us for free and have advertising revenue as their financial model, they're not necessarily aligned with providing the best tools to the end user. I mean, there's the old saying, if you don't pay for the product, you are the product. I think I like Shoshana Zuboff's take on it, which is, if you don't pay for the product, you're not the product, you're the rotting carcass from which the product is ripped. And of course, her take is relatively strong. I agree with a lot of it, but in terms of the incentives of who are giving these products, I think that needs to be a broader conversation, not only about Google and Facebook, of course, but around who's building what for whom.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, I think like part of this is like self-awareness and not building things that exacerbate our weaknesses, including, you know, addictive tendencies and polarization and things of that nature. What are the things that we want to do better? Again, I'd come back to the translation example. Enabling us to communicate with more people, that's great. And I can pay for Duolingo, and I'd probably pay for Google Translate if I had to.
0: Maybe I'd prefer to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I like it. Let's wrap up in a second. I do want to pivot back a bit to tooling, because we're talking more about kind of our human condition as a whole. I am wondering, I think a lot about low-code and no-code tooling. And of course, part of my mission is, we'll get a bit personal with me here, but you know my background's in academic research where I saw research scientists who were brilliant, brilliant scientists, experimentalists who had next to no time in their daily life to even figure out how to do statistics robustly, to do generative modelling, to interact with the command line and, and cron jobs and all the things that they started to need to do. And that really made me make part of my mission wanting to help what essentially is millions, if not tens of millions of current scientists and future scientists have tools and workflows to do their jobs better and in, in a more human way. And I do think a low-code future for a lot of them is important, not for everyone, right? And a no-code future could be really useful for maybe 80% of them, maybe 20% of them. I honestly don't I don't want to put a number on that. There's a lot of variance there. But I'm wondering what you feel about, I mean, you work on tools and speak with a lot of people who build tools that are for very technical people, right? So, what you think about the future of low code and no code tooling?
1: Yeah. So, firstly, I think like we shouldn't necessarily be like bucking like low code and no code together. I think there there are very, like very major differences between no code and low code tools. And frankly, I think like there are many circumstances where like code affords you much more flexibility than like a visual interface would. But code shouldn't be hard. It shouldn't be that challenging to write code and then build an application. You shouldn't have to think about like environments. You shouldn't have to think about Kubernetes, etc. And so, like, I do think that there's a lot of promise in in the low code space. But I'm I'm almost reminded too of like you know my what I was talking about with like these translation apps, like. I use a translation app when I'm traveling, you know, throughout Mexico, to communicate with somebody at a pharmacy. Yes, it serves that purpose, but I'm not going to have like a meaningful dialogue with a friend or colleague over Google Translate. I'm going to have to learn Spanish if I want to do that. When I think about code in kind of a similar way, I think, you know, there are things that no-code platforms might enable us to do. Which don't require a high degree of complexity, don't require a high degree of flexibility. If you need more flexibility, the flexibility that code affords, then like maybe a low code system is better. And then sometimes like maybe we—I don't know what the opposite of low code is—high code, (laughs) but
0: Code, code 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 code. Yeah.
1: But yeah, I mean, I think different use cases for different things my favorite tools though are those that enable you to kind of like scale these ladders of abstraction i think excel is like one of the most amazing products of all time because you can interact with it as a gui
0: that's a great if we're talking about getting millions of people to use it as well and like it is absolutely amazing
1: yeah well, like you can interact with Excel as basically just a GUI for viewing data. Like you don't have to write any code in Excel. You can just look at the spreadsheet and get like a sense of like what data is there. Totally. You can write relatively simple formulas and use Excel in a different way. You can write like VBA and like extend the the functionality of Excel in amazing ways. And I think it, it invites people
0: I'm pretty sure you can embed arbitrary Python code in Excel these days. Maybe like you may need Really some of the, I think there's a product that does it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You can interface with the tool according to your use case and technical ability. And I think like it's just amazing.
0: Yeah. Sarah, I'd love to know if you have a call to action for our listeners. But before that I'd just love to say thank you for Wonderful conversation. And let's say I've asked some difficult questions and self-reflection and, and that type of stuff. And also being really open to having a, a broad conversation around this stuff.
1: Yeah, of course. So it was super fun. I love all the directions that we went in. I enjoyed the conversation a lot. So thank you for having me on the show.
0: Absolutely. So
1: yeah, what would you... Call to action.
0: Yeah. What do you want people to do?
1: Define standards for machine learning and think about problems that ought to be solved and not just technologies that are cool.
0: I could not have said that better myself. Thank you once again, Sarah.
1: Of course. Thank you.
0: Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And thanks for sticking around to the end of the episode. I would honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you in the show, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter, at Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Baum. See you in the next episode.